Hello and welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast. I'm Joe Worthington and before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give you a little update on what's happening with the Jungle Brothers and the Jungle Alliance. We spoke to Tiro two days ago and he's had the DA approved for his new gym in Ballina. So Jungle Ballina will be opening soon. The DA is approved, so that means he can go, go ahead and start getting set up. I believe COVID has thrown a bit of a spanner into the works for them. They are also in lockdown, but things are dangerously close. So we're hoping that by the end of the year, we're going to have the second Jungle Alliance gym that we can go and visit and train at and see how that place evolves. Now, uh, further to that, T's also promised that he will get back on the podcast soon. So I'm hoping to get him sometime in the next couple of weeks. In today's episode, Paul and I are joined by a fellow named Ben Lawrence. Ben is a writer, a photographer, and a director. His current focus is in writing and directing feature films. In the last three years, he's released three such films, which have won him numerous awards, both overseas and at home. Those, are, those films are Ghost Hunter, which was released in 2018, Hearts and Bones in 2019, and his latest film, Ithaca, which follows the father of Julian Assange in his quest to free his son, was actually set for release right now, but due to COVID, it has been postponed. That was going to be released through the Melbourne Film Festival, so keep an eye out for that. Now, Ben has built his career on creativity, and it's creativity that was the focus of today's chat. We believe that the ability to be creative is an extremely relevant part of any business, now more so than ever. Whether it's writing blogs, telling stories through your social media, or making your gym or even your shop look awesome and inviting and unique, having the ability to express yourself through that place or through that content is integral to the success of your business. We wanted to find out how someone like Ben manages his time and the other commitments in his life in order to maximize his creative output. We spoke to him about where he gets his inspiration and even how he reconciles the times when a project doesn't quite come to fruition. Ben also happens to be my older cousin and a very close old family friend of Paul's. It's been a long time since we've all caught up, so being able to do it today during the show was quite special for Paul and I. Now, if you ever find it hard to get your creative juices flowing, whether that's writing, speaking, thinking, or building, you will find this episode pretty damn helpful and inspiring. The first half of the chat is mostly around Ben's career and how that has evolved to bring him to where he is today. It's in the second half of the chat where we get into the finer details of Ben's creative process. On to the show. Please enjoy our chat with Ben Lawrence. Hey guys, welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast. I'm your host, Joey and Paul. Good afternoon. How you guys doing? Uh, Tiora's not with us today, but I've given you a little bit of background on where he's at. So he should be back on the show soon. Uh, today we're joined by Ben Lawrence. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Ben, pleasure. Um, let me give a quick little backstory on Ben. Ben is a, a, a Sydney-based writer, film director, TV director. Um, photographer. Uh, photographer. Uh, impeccable photographer um and also my cousin and a very close friend of paul's you actually almost say you two guys are cousins as well pretty much brothers almost o older brother brothers <laughs> mate it's uh it's so strange for me of all the people that we interview i actually feel and you won't believe this a little bit starstruck talking to you today why is that i've known you guys since you were like three I well think i've known you since you were born joe but like paul i've known since he was how old I don't know. I think we met when, I don't know, it's hazy back there, around the 9, 10 or something like that. Had yeah. to have been, yeah, early on. I don't know. I think it's maybe the formality of the podcast and then 
because we're so used to just hanging out, right? And, and we haven't hung out for years, right? In truth, we we're just catching up before the show. It's been so long. We've all got kids now uh, or kid. Um, you know, a lot of time has passed, but this is such a, this medium of catching up for us, I guess is new. Uh, I don't know. And it's, uh, it, yeah, I don't know. I feel a great honor to be able to talk with you on the podcast. Oh, it's lovely of you to say. Look, it gives me such pleasure to see you guys. I remember uh, when you were young <laughs> and kicking around, uh, playing touch football or soccer or whatever we were doing, and, and you guys trying to keep up with us older fellas, which was a wonderful joy. But then you two becoming friends and now, you know, colleagues and business partners and all of that is just it's just wonderful. It's just a, a lovely bromance to see watched flourish. <laughs> could you give us, um, for listeners, could you, could you paint, we've told the story before, but could you talk about the, the, your connection to the Photophilly family and how that's all played out? Yeah, well, we all went to school together. Let's, let's lay that out. We all grew up in pretty much the same area of uh, inner west, kind of lower North Shore, Sydney. Um, and I became really good friends with Paul's brother, Moses. And uh, from that point, I met the rest of the family and they just kept coming out of the woodwork. There were just so many of the photophillies. <laughs> they were actually like there were three or four photophillies older than me, one that I never met or two that I never met, I think, in the high school. And then there was kind of three younger than me, I think. So, um, yeah, I think through that. And then Moses and I started working together, you know, in, in the same industry, in the film industry. Um, but really, I think the friendship became about because of all the cousins that we had, you and your brother, Joe, Abe. Uh, so I think it was just an ongoing time of having these people around that we just hang out with and, you know, kick around, play sport. Yeah, I thought, um, was, was sport something that brought you guys together? Because you guys, I just remember, it was touch footy, there was Robbie Volpato, there was table tennis, there was a lot of tennis that went on over in Balmain. Golf. Was that golf? I mean, it was golf. anything, Any right? You guys sport. were very sporty. Bunch. Yeah. Look, sport was a big connection. I mean, I'm not as sporty as your brother, Paul Moses. Um, He's the uh, definition he of was, He lived and breathed sport, you know. that's. But in order to spend time with him and my other friends, they all wanted to play sport, mm. you know. I'd had to draw the line sometimes <laughs> when we just wanted to do something else. Well, I wanted to do something else. But I, I really loved sport and it was a great thing. We'd play basketball, you know, till after sunset at school close up the gym ourselves. Then we go and play darts at the pub, you know, and we get up in the morning. But we, we did play board games, actually. That was a big thing. We did end up playing board games. I remember the games nights you know? at your place. Yeah, we used to have games yeah. nights at your place. Um, games your nights, cards. It, was, it yeah. did revolve around competition a lot, you know. But, you know, I'd spend time, you know, in the wee hours of the morning in the city playing pool in those pool halls that don't seem to exist oh, anymore as well. Snooker World. Snooker World. Was it yeah, Boomerang? Me- Metropolitan, no. Metropolitan Metro Underground. Yeah, yeah. Was Metro, yeah, was oh, the, as in Metro, the, was it a bar, the one on the corner? Or No, no. Well, it was, was Underground, it's just its own one on Pitt Street, yeah. Fuck, I don't think I've experienced that. Ben, can you tell me how many photophilies there are? <laughs> <laughs> what, just in your family? No, just how, how, many, how many brothers and sisters are there? Just one. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to say there's six. So you mustn't have met two of them. There's eight. There's eight in total. Who's the eighth? Robert. It was Robert. Yeah. Eddie. Robert. Fifi. Eddie. Aroni. Aroni Moses, Moses. Betty. Yeah. Sarah Paul. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I had <laughs> met Robert. Yeah. I forgot Robert. It's been some years. Just before yeah, we yeah. kicked off to, we were just sort of having a brief catch up and Ben was like, oh, Paul, you, 
you got two kids now. <laughs> and Paul, like, being the photo field, he's like, no, nah, bro, i got three. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. You're following in the footsteps. I know. You get so much congratulations when you have your first child. Mm. The second, not so much. And so the third, you know, it's, you know, there's not as many photographs, I'm sure, of the third oh, as well. totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben, can you um can you give us a bit of a, a bit of context around your career? So obviously, you know, I mentioned photographer, director, writer. Um, paint a bit of a picture of what that what that looks like for you over the you know the last whatever it's been, I guess, a couple of decades. Yeah, sure. Look, I always wanted to be in the creative industry. Uh, you know, whether that was being a photographer or a cinematographer, I had once aspirations for. Um, but pretty much in my late teens, I realized I wanted to be a director, a film director. And my father's a film director as well. And so I grew up in that world, knowing what I was kind of getting into. Um, but the next challenge was how to make a living. And so very early on in my early 20s, I started making TV commercials and would join companies where who'd represent me. And I spent 20 years doing that. And probably since about the GFC, I really worked out that I'd what well, I'd been making a living, you know, I'd been paying off my house, I'd been starting a family and, you know, and that idea of becoming a film director felt like it was kind of falling on the wayside a little bit. That was during my thirties. And um, the GFC kind of uh, put a big knock in my company at the time, work really dried up. And I started writing my own works, my own screenplays. And that was about in 2010. So probably in the last decade, I've really focused on trying to make more films and documentaries and so in the last uh five years i've made three films two documentaries and a feature film and done a little bit of tv documentary series work um so that's kind of a nutshell of my career and at the moment i'm really just trying to maintain that momentum and continue to make work that interests me write my own films and also work on documentaries that uh, also come my way or or or, uh, kind of spark an interest for me could you tell us? Could you tell us what a director does? I remember when I first went onto a, um, a movie set with when I when I got my first gig working on a show. Paul was working on it, and I was doing some work experience. And I, I think you said it to me, Paul. I didn't know what the fuck was going on, and I think someone. It was a conversation around who is the director here, and I assumed that it was the first AD, the first assistant director, because they're the person that's yelling and shouting. And I'm like, oh, that's the director because they're running the show. The director's often like, uh, well, I don't know, like um, at least for where we were working, not someone you would have a lot of contact with. Can you talk to like for, for folks who have never been on a film set, what is the director's role? Yeah, look, it, it, it's interesting because the, the role of a director does differ across different mediums. So the role on a, of a TV director um, would be very different from, say, a documentary director or a, or a feature film director. So let's take a feature film director. They're like the author of the film. You know, that's that the feature films, you have the director who's, they create the world, I guess. So they speak to every, they brief every department about what their vision is. So they'll talk to the art department. Well, let's just say the wardrobe person and say, I have this in mind for these types of outfits, this color palette. And they'll work together and they'll do that with every single department. And it goes all the way uh, through the, with the cinematographer and to the actors and also to the writer as well in a lot of ways. So it's the director's vision that really is imparted upon a feature film. Um, it's slightly different for, for other formats when you get to TV because the producer has a little bit more creative say. 
but the director is the creative visionary upon a upon a film. So that's what I would say. I would also it, it occurred to me recently that a director is also should be the last person left, you know. And what I mean by that is if you have uh, the director should be able to do everything in a way. So <laughs> if for some reason the sound person is able to turn up, the director should know how to do that roughly enough that they could kind of step in, you know, they just kind of pass the time until you get someone in. And I, I raise that because working in documentary, you, you generally have very small teams that you work with. So you might have a sound person, a director and a camera person. And it's those three and maybe a producer that those three will make the film themselves. And so you all kind of start to interchange. But a director is really the author. That's the best way to explain it on a project. It's their vision that you see on screen. And how does that relationship play out with a, with a writer? So if you were directing a film that was written by somebody else, are you saying that it's kind of written based off your vision? Or like how does, how does that happen? It depends on the relationship with the writer, but you know, often there are systems that are set up that if you are brought on as a director for a film and you're presented with a screenplay, you are given an opportunity to what's called a director's pass. So you may be able to do a, a pass on that, but or you may just kind of talk to the writer about your vision of how some characters interact, some story beats. You might come up with a really nice opening that's more of a, a visual aspect of the story that can re-represent. Um, an otherwise dialogue-based scene. It's things like that that you start to have a collaboration with everyone from the very beginning that's starting with the writer. And in my case, I wrote um, the film that I made. So uh, I co-wrote it, actually. So that was that was how my relationship with the writer evolved. I ended up co-writing it. Um, can you talk to us about your film? And, I mean, there's there's been, there's been a few looking at checking your IMDb earlier. And obviously, Paul and I have seen a, a bit of your stuff over the years. Um, take us through what those sort of those main few productions have been in recent years. Yeah, sure. So my first feature film was a documentary called Ghost Hunter, and I followed a, uh, a ghost hunter, a suburban ghost hunter, for seven years and filmed him uh, going into homes and cleansing them and, and filming, you know, trying to find ghosts and spirits. And that actually turned into a true crime story, um, and it became a hunt for his father. And the police were also looking for his father at, this, at the same time as well. But that was five years into the project. I'd been following this guy for five years through Western Sydney in the middle of the night, bumping around, looking for ghosts. So that, that had a lot of aspects to it that really kept me engaged. And that ended up turning into a feature film called Ghost Hunter. Um, my next film was called Hearts and Bones, which is a drama that I began writing in 2002 and we got it to screen in 2019. So that was a 17-year kind of project. Wow. Great movie. So, Great film. Oh, thank you. So that, that starred Hugo Weaving, and that revolved around a – he was a war photographer, his character, and he's approached by a man uh, from South Sudan who he had photographed 20 years earlier. And that film is about the relationship between those two character, characters, you know, about a photographer and his subject. And it was the photograph was taken in the middle of war, a war zone in South Sudan 20 years earlier. So that was a kind of a thriller, emotional drama. And then the most recent film is another documentary called Ithaca, which we haven't released yet, and that follows uh, Julian Assange's father on his campaign to save his son, Julian. Um, so that's just, just – we've just finished that the last three or four weeks. How long were you working on that uh, for? How long were you following him for? 
Because uh, um, I see Ghost Hunter seven years. Um, that's incredible. Just to be following a story for that long. And then, yeah, like you said, a lot of the the real twists and stuff didn't come till five years on. So how long were you um, how long were you following Mr. Assange? Uh, well, I was following John for about three months. The cinematographer mm. who filmed the documentary, he'd been following him for eight months prior. So we had about a year of footage. Um, but I was brought on in August last year. I got a call from the producer and um, he said, we've been filming this, we need a director, can you come to London? So I flew to London in September last year and I spent three months there. And then we started editing in December and then we've just finished. So it's taken 12 months for it to finish, which was really quick for me because to go from knowing nothing about the project to having completed, when you compare it to something like Ghost Hunter, yeah, which was seven years. Thankfully, I was working in the meantime, meaning making a living doing TV commercials. This this yeah. wasn't, you know, I, that's the other balance is how do you make a living while you're doing, trying to transition into another area of your work? How do you, uh, there's so much to, to, to pick into there. So, you know, we're kind of not, not necessarily going to be systematic about this, but how do you reconcile going from something like Ghost Hunter where you're putting your time and your energy into telling a story and, and, and you, you said yourself it was seven years um, to then doing a TV commercial where you're advertising Cocoa Pops or McDonald's burgers. How do you switch between the two? Obviously, one of them is highly creative and passion-driven and the other one is kind of commercially driven and essential, mm -hmm. right, to your survival. How do you switch between the two in, in your role? Um, look, it, it's changed over the years. You know, when I started doing commercials, um, I, I really threw myself into it. I was 22. I had, you know, worked as a camera assistant. I'd done a lot of photography and I was just trying to break in and I was weighing up whether or not to go to film school. And that was three year commitment at the time. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to come out of film school. There's no guarantee I'm going to get work. So commercials seemed like a really good option, you know, and the idea was to really cut my teeth, um, doing what a director does in as much that you work with a crew in order to create a vision on film that goes on screen. And, you know, through a very slow process, or actually a fast process with TV commercials, because they were a lot busier then, there were a lot more of them, is that you could be filming, you know, 30, 40 days a year, you know, and you're having the same problems you do as the director and trying to work with cinematographers and actors and all of those things to bring things to life. And so I was, it was my film school really. And, and it was a very kind of practical approach to learning how to be a film director. And it's been a common uh, route for a lot of directors that they do commercials to begin with. Um, and so I didn't feel that it was, you know, any way lessened by it, but I knew that at some point I had to make the transition into tell longer stories. And I felt that the time came when I was ready. And that's when I started writing my own stories and following other characters and doing documentaries. And, and so I knew I had to um, earn my stripes. And so that's what I looked at document, uh, TV commercials for then. But also, you know, it's an expensive place to live in Sydney. You know, you still have to make a living. I always find that, like, life is – you can only sustain yourself when you're getting energy back from things that you're inputting into. And TV commercials was that injection back in. So I was making an effort. I was trying to get a reel of work together. I was trying to work with people and create a reputation. And what I was getting back was I was getting paid well and I was also getting opportunities to travel, but I was also making – progress you know 
And um, it was that energy back that just kept you going because it's a grind. You know, it, you look at yourself as a small business and you think, how am I going to get from here to there? And in the meantime, it's all those little milestones that keep you going. And that's what kept me going, but also gave me a bit of a framework to, um, for, for periods of time, become financially independent for a couple of months where I can work on my other projects. So it was a bit strategic but it was a bit emotional kind of feeding you, you know, sustaining you. It's a bit of everything. It's a mind game, you know. It kind of sums up a lot of the, even our experience in film to an extent, doesn't it? Taking on some projects, filling up the bank account, allowing you some time and space and then you're like, okay, now I've got to get back into it and looking for the thing. Yeah, and everyone questions, you know, where they're going, what are they doing and, and you, can, you can get swept up in that and you can find, okay, well, I've been really successful doing X, and, um, you know, but you take your mind off the ball. And, and, and in that way, I meant that I kind of had a very early ambition to make films. And it's t- taken a long time. I, I don't, I think everyone's journey is unique, but it's just keeping that vision of what you want to be doing. And probably the most important thing is you never get there. Mm. Because if you get there, well, what are you going to do once you get there? So it's just that you know, constantly trying to challenge yourself and find new goals and and keep in mind what you really want to be doing. And you also have people around you saying, you know, knowing that you're unhappy with the work that you're doing or you might find that you're getting a bit stale. So they kind of prompt you, why don't you do this? And that ongoing conversation you have with yourself and others about, okay, maybe I should do this. And it's that energy that you get from them and other, other inputs from life that I think is, is, is kind of, kept me going yeah i think it's pretty amazing like when i think about what you do and people in your type of position where you like you said you've got to keep your eyes on on the prize and you've you know it sounds like it would have been a very trying time to sacrifice um like what might be pretty stable work as a commercial director and go ahead and do uh chase down some films um and longer projects um you know and i think you probably at the same time as having young, a young family and stuff. Um, but I, I guess I wanted to know like what, yeah, so what interests you? I mean, I know you, you've always been like a, a very interesting guy who's always very interested in stuff. You know, you like learning about things, traveling, learning about people. And um, I like to think we're a little bit the same and, you know, but uh, like, what is it that, because I know you've, you've through the your work, you've attracted to this guy who's a ghost hunter, like, like what attracted you to him? What are the stories that you're interested in? So like what is it that pulled you out of, you know, where you were doing commercials and wanting, like what is that thing that kind of draws you towards wanting to do something else? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I I think, yeah, it's what, I think it's people. I think it's people and their stories. Like I'm really interested in people. I, I remember watching documentaries when I was young, younger, and asking myself, how did they do that? How did they get that person to speak in that candid way about personal things that are deeply private to them and share it on camera? Mm. And I I really question what is that process that you get from A to B and then you show that to a public, to an audience, the deepest secrets or very personal moments of someone's life. And it's that process that really interested me and that from a documentarian, but then also uh, from a, a drama filmmaker position of how do you get an actor to that position where they're showing their vulnerability and, you know, actors have all sorts of tricks, but 
that was the puzzle I wanted to work out. Mm. And in some ways of just trial and error, you kind of work out a way in which you can work with people in a way, in a very intimate way. And that's what I was interested in with the ghost hunter guy because the first time I met him, um, he shared with me a little bit about his past and it was just enough for me to see that there was more of a story there. And so I just followed my nose with that and that's what kept me going, you know, and he, like an onion, just unraveled and, and, we, and we got deeper and deeper into who he was and as we did, we also found more about his life and his family life and his past and, you know, and, and that's, that's what really kept me going. So I guess it's the fascination with people. It's working out how to earn their trust so they can share things with you and then just trying to make sense of the mess that you're left with when you're finished filming after seven years to put that in an hour and a half that represents what that journey looked like. You know, it's, it's compression of life. So all of those things I wanted to work out, but um, yeah, I, I think it's people. Yeah, okay. So it's people, people's stories that you're interested in. I mean, everyone loves like meeting a really, like a character, like someone that they don't meet often and it's that person at the pub that has a funny story or something. How do you choose, how do you choose though, like what, what's, the, what's the story to tell? Is it, um, you know, I, I do see um, kind of a lot of, creatives who are trying to tell stories that need to be told or haven't been told for whatever political reason or otherwise, how do you choose it? Or is it, is there a, a clear way that you do that? Or is it just like instinct? Like this is an interesting thing here. Yeah. Look, no, I am constantly reading stories and thinking they'd make great documentaries or they might make a good uh, drama. Mm. Um, and I file them away in a folder. And I think, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. One thing is you need a great character for a documentary. You need someone who can tell the story in a way in which is engages the audience. You know, they talk about charisma on screen and those sort of things. So someone that has that is really important. And then they need a story to tell. I mean, do they have a story? Mm. And if they have a story and they're a good character, you're two-thirds of the way there. Because I think the final thing is the world. What is that visual world that we experience that we go into that may be the subculture like ghost hunting, or it might be in the last film I did, it was revolved around a court case. Um, you know, what, what, what is the new world we're taking the audience into? So it's the, it's, it's the character, it's their story, their ability to tell it. And then also that visual layer, you know, and I think all of those things uh, go for the same in which when you, we tell our story or we pitch ourselves to people or we, it, it's all of those are encapsulated in, what people engage with, you know, they want to be taken to a new world by someone who they're willing to go there with, you know, and trust is a lot to do with that, but sometimes it's just charm and curiosity and, you know, suspicion, you know, someone you're a bit suspicious of, you want to know more, you'll go on a journey with them, you know, mm. it might get dark, but I think, I think it's those, those things that, uh, you know, my, my, this folder that I have of stories is just, I've gone down so many paths of trying to tell some stories and you always hit obstacles. There was one guy who was really interested in telling his story. He lived up on uh, South Head and his balcony overlooked the gap. And so he would sit up there and he would see people who were going there to commit suicide. So he took it upon himself to then go down there and talk to these people. And he became an advocate uh, for mental health 
And But over the years, he'd saved dozens and dozens of people by just going down and talking to these people. He's since passed away, but I contacted him and said, you've got such a remarkable story. Would you be interested in doing a film? And there's a number of articles out there about him. But that was just one story that encapsulated this character who had a story to tell that also transcended just the narrative. You know, it had a deeper kind of issue that, that society could kind of grapple with. Yeah, um, I, I guess you're, as a director, you you expose yourself to everything in the world and you're, you're definitely um, influenced by, you know, what, what's happening in the world. Like, you know, there's a rising mental health problem. This is something that maybe need to be told. I guess I'm going to think about it now. The last two movies that you've made are kind of topical as well because um, the Heart and Bones was about that uh, around the time I think it was there was a great refugee crisis um, and I know at the end of the film it kind of touched more on that by showing some real images and then the Assange one was something that was happened to all of us because we've all kind of watched that and there's some other kind of political things that a lot of people have, have it's just become a conversation right yeah um, no exactly and I think your personality comes out when you're in the middle of the film in that I mean I feel like no matter what story I'm telling them always drawn to similar aspects. So, you know, with Ghost Hunter and Hearts and Bones, there was, a, there was an aspect of trauma, overcoming trauma. There, you had a, a refugee in that from South Sudan who was overcoming his lived trauma and then a war photographer who had witnessed so much. And the same with Ghost Hunter, you know, it had to do with embedded trauma. And I think Julian's story, you know, really focused on his mental health and uh, what he'd kind of been through in his period in the embassy, but also what he's going through after almost three years in prison, told from the perspective of his family. So I guess that mental health issue was something that I, uh, it does tend to focus your storytelling a little bit, you know. Um, so that's, I think that's my natural kind of thing that I'm drawn to. Again, it might be drilling deeper into people's psyches, but um, that shaped the idea of the story I wanted to tell around Julian as well. So, yeah, um, I think there's themes that come out over time. You don't even realise. When you're in that process, say with Ghost Hunter, where you're, you're going out in the middle of the night with this guy to look for ghosts, and I'm guessing you probably don't have a strong belief that there's ghosts out there. Like, you know, you're probably not as on board with the whole project as he no. is, right? I'm a total sceptic, total sceptic, I'd be honest. Yeah, so like, so you're like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll get out there. Talk about, tell us about the times when you're out there and you're like, what the fuck am I wasting my time on this for? Oh, yeah, I mean, some of the times, you know, you drive out to people. It was always fascinating and I did, so his name was Jason. He Jason was the ghost hunter and I would say to Jason, I really love going out ghost hunting with you when there's a client who lives in a house who's troubled, you know, because often he would want to go out to an empty building and he'd want to go and, you know, go into a graveyard. But it was just him bouncing around in the dark with a video camera talking to ghosts, you know, trying to take photographs and capture these things. And so, you know, because I, I was a sceptic, I those ones where we're in a graveyard, you know, we could spend like five hours there in the middle of the night out in the Blue Mountains somewhere and it was kind of scary for a little while, but then in the end, yeah, you, it's that, again, it brings it back to that person. And I'll give you one example. So we went to a house in Western Sydney. It was in Claymore, a really poor area. They had three generations living in a house and they were all sleeping in the same bedroom because they were so scared to go into any other room by themselves. 
the, the, the mother wouldn't even shower by herself. She'd have to have a husband sitting next to her while she was showering because there was this spirit in the house and they had witnessed their four-year-old grandchild being dragged across the room by an invisible spirit. So this is the story that I turn up to at this house, wow. you know, and, you know, so I'm scared, you know, no, when you go to a house like that and you have five people who live there and they're scared and they turn the lights out and they all start talking to what they call the beast <laughs> it's, it's really scary. Fear spreads among humans and, and you, no one's immune to it, you know? And so you're standing there in the dark and what they try and do in this case was they were trying to evoke the spirit or um, anger it so it would manifest itself and do something to one of us. So, you know, so you had Jason there in the middle of the night in the dark saying, come and scratch me, you know, grab, grab the daughter or do this. or And so they're wanting to amplify the situation. And in the same time, everyone's getting really jumpy, you know, and I'm trying to film it and trying to capture this. And the whole time I'm telling myself, you know, ghosts aren't real. But you've got the majority of people that you're with, are, you know, people are fainting because they're so overwhelmed by the, by the moment. Um, in that case, Jason had um, gone to a local church and empty, filled up a water bottle with the holy water, you know. <laughs> so he'd stolen some holy water from a local church and he, then they waved it around the house and they'd burnt some sage and done all the kind of things that I guess you do to cleanse a place like that. What it did was, though, it gave an outlet for that family to be heard because they couldn't go to people. Who are they going to go to and tell them? You know, everyone thinks they're crazy. And so they have Jason there for five hours listening to all the stories of what's happening to them. And then he does a cleansing ceremony. He takes some photographs and does all that. That's the piece. It's being heard. You know, it's the piece is, and, and they get some comfort. And then a week or two later, he goes back and he shows them his evidence, what he's recorded, what his photographs are. There's this follow-up. And so what I saw <clears throat> is a catharsis, a healing of people who have nowhere to turn, just being heard. And that in itself is enough for them just to step up and make their home feel safe again. And I saw that over and over again for seven years. And that, that's remarkable. He was just a, a sympathetic ear at the end of the day. That's what I thought. But other people will say, oh, no, they're haunted places. So, you know, it's... Wow. That's 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 a very significant kind of that's a very cool tale and I can I mean it's it's almost tangible the the feeling that you would get going through that and seeing that play out and being able to be that person that's telling the story. Are you saying that 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 sort of experience for you, which in your words you had multiple times throughout that project, does that give you faith to keep going because you're like something special is happening here and I'm telling this story? Yeah, definitely. Like you're capturing something, you know, um, like with my photography when I was younger, I haven't been able to do it so much recently, but it was always the idea of ca capturing something that like a hunter, you know, you go out with nothing and then you have a vision in mind of what you think you're going to capture and everything kind of coalesces, you know, your camera's working, you know, you, you have characters interacting in the space, the lighting's good, you know, everything just happens to focus in right in on that one moment and you get that lightning in a bottle moment and you're a hunter and you go home and you've been successful. And with photography, I felt it was like that because you would look at that image and you go, wow, I actually caught it that day. But you can spend hours, you know, walking around aimlessly hoping for that kind of moment to happen, but you've got to do the work. You've got to, like, inspiration 
or, or divine intervention has to happen when you're doing the work, mm. I guess. So if I wasn't there filming with Jason, it wouldn't, you know, the tree in the forest wouldn't be heard because it wasn't being captured. Can you talk about the, the, that idea of repurposing the, the content, the stuff that you're shooting? So obviously Ghost Hunt is a great example. It reminds me of the documentary you might have seen on Netflix, Icarus. Mm, about the right. doping in, in um, sports, in you know, the Russian doping scandal. And the, the documentary starts as one thing and then it pivots you know, partway through and it's this whole different story, which is what happened with Ghost Hunter. How does that work where you kind of go in, obviously with an idea of, I'm guessing with a, an idea of a story you want to tell, and then at a point you're like, nah, when, we're going to send this in a whole different direction because this is what has now emerged. Oh, look, it's a real gift when that happens, you know. Um, the the focus uh you know just magnifies of what you're doing you know so in one way you walk into a story and you, the landscape is anything's possible you have this idea of a guy he's hunting ghosts it's kind of a nice idea but what's the shape of it and then one day jason says to me um i have all these medical records from when i was a kid and um i don't remember ever going to hospital and he's got scars all over him and so the mystery then becomes how did, what happened to him, you know? So all of a sudden you have an, a question that you set up and you want, to, want it answered. You know, in the case of Icarus, that, that big left-hand turn that the film takes is such a gift for a storyteller. And I think that in that instance, you just want to hang on for the ride and you just try and you have all these new problems because you might have more characters, you might have more locations, you might have a, a far more emotional uh, character that you have to deal with. It might get dangerous. Um, but you have uh, far more things that you need to capture as well. And so you just start recording everything, you know, telephone calls and this and that. You don't really know what's going to happen, but you don't want to miss anything. So that's, that, that moment really excites me because it's unfold, life's unfolding and the unfolding of life is, is, is revealing itself in a, in a way in which it rarely does, you know, life has meaning, life lacks meaning most of the time, but in that moment it has meaning, you know, that's what's beautiful about sport. You know, there's clear rules, you know, when it's a goal and when it's not a goal but with life, you don't, you can have a fantastic day, but you're like, did I kick a goal? I don't know. It was kind of great. <laughs> that's what's great about sport. We all love it. We know the rules. We know when things are good and we know when things are bad. And, and storytelling is a little bit like that. When you can make it clear to say this was a positive outcome and the audience can get emotional about it knowing that it was a positive outcome, they know the rules of the universe you've created, um, then that's, that's a really powerful moment. Could you talk on what it's like to have projects? Uh, you touched on it earlier with the, the fella from, uh, who lived by the Gap. But on projects that don't come to fruition where, you know, I'm... Uh, whether it's wasted time or not, but just dealing with, because I'm looking at this from the perspective that like, like creativity is a wonderful thing, but there's a cost to be creative yeah. and there's time and energy put in and that time and energy isn't always returned. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I mean, you need some sustenance coming back and sometimes that sustenance is the internal voice that you have with yourself telling yourself that no, no time is wasted, you know. And what I mean by that is, uh, I'll give you an example. So when I was in um, my early 20s, I thought I was going to make a documentary about Parramatta Road. I remember this. You remember this, yeah. And I so do I, too. I, is that, is that old, number one Parramatta Road? Uh, no, it's about the whole road. So that's oh, the concept. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I thought did and you I made a make... short film about one character. That's the one. That's what I saw. Yeah, that's you would have seen that. So that was the concept in a very thin slice, just one. But I spent twelve months walking the length of Parramatta Road, which is twenty kilometers. You know, I, in the meantime, I was working, like I said, um, but. It didn't occur to me. And what I do is I knock on doors and I introduce myself as a filmmaker and can I talk to you? And I was virtually casting it in a way in which I was trying to find people's stories that lived on the road and they're all linked by this one road. That was the concept. And I never made the film, but I made a short just as an example to raise money that I showed that this is what's possible. It was based on an elderly Italian man. And... um, Going back to your point of is time wasted is I really had to reconcile and it didn't come to me till m- many years later that time wasn't wasted. All that time that I spent in people's homes, earning their trust, knocking on doors, just cold calling people, um, that gives you tools later on in life that are really handy. So, you know, you just have to work out, for me, I had to work out what it was I learned and, and how can I, you know, input, put that into my work later on. So, yeah, the, the understanding of, of why time isn't wasted often doesn't come for many months, many years. But when you work that out, you can let go of it. And you're like, oh, that's why I did that. Yeah. It's good to keep that in mind when you're in the middle of a moment when it's all just like falling apart and you think it's a waste of time. What am I doing here? Can I get uh, something out of it. Yeah, can I ask um, about like this folder? Is that figurative or do you actually have a folder or a box where you have – you know, books of writing with ideas or maybe there's half a script or there's, you know, a couple of tapes with a few hours footage on, like all these ideas and projects. How do you, how do you store them? What does that look like? And is there, are we talking dozens or hundreds over a few decades? Yeah. Oh, look, probably hundreds. You know, I tend to go through and I um, refine them every, if I'm just really at a, a bit of a loss end and I've got a writer's block or something, they're mainly articles that I read. Mm. You know, some of them are projects that I've put aside and they, they kind of are in video form that I've filmed something. Some of them are um, stories that I've written, but most of them are articles. Okay. Yeah, and one of them is, uh, let me give you an example, a 13-year-old girl, she's Australian. Um, she got invited over to study as a uh, sumo wrestler. So first of all, you have a female non-Westerner going to Japan to study. This was a, like 15 years ago I read about her and I thought, what a great story. I haven't heard anything from her since, but I thought, imagine going on that journey. I'd go on that journey mm. because it, straight away, you know, everyone's eyes light up and go, wow, what, what's the story there? Let's go to Tokyo and see what it looks like a 13-year-old living in a sumo stable. <laughs> you know, what's she going to learn? You know, and she was a big girl. She had a build and she had technique. I think she'd done wrestling. Wow. So that was, it's some stuff like that, but they just I'd watch that. There. I'd watch that I'd too. I'd definitely watch that. <laughs> yeah. You, you hung out in a sumo stable in Japan, didn't you? I did, yeah. I was too scared to take my camera out too. That's right, because they were kind of just tolerating you there. Do I remember that? Oh, I think I think my friend that lived there put the fear in me because I told him I was going there and I'd rung them and I'd gotten the hotel to speak to them. And they're just so embedded in their tradition that, um, you know, I had to bring a gift and it was early morning and I was, you know, it was just everything around it I'd built up in my mind. And then being in the same room as a sumo when there's no one else there is – it's like being in the room with uh, like a bull, you know, like in a small indoors with like one of those big bulls, mm-hmm. you know, they're just, they're, they're sweaty and they're snorting and they're you know, really physical, but it's, um, 
the, also the hierarchy and the respect around that sport, it, it extends into their atmosphere around them and also within the stable. They all live in the same building, the stables, and the, the, the morning starts off with the junior guy and then by the later on the morning, the big boss who's the main wrestler, the most famous in the stable, he'll come down when they were all warmed up and he'll start training. So it's that you also see that. So I, look, in my mind, it was really powerful and too scared to even photograph it. I wish I had. It's beautiful. The one that got away. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of them, a lot of them. So how does, how does that like, so there's obviously a, you have to be liberal with your time and you have to be patient and you have to be optimistic to, to, to do what you do. Does having kids and a partner and, and does that change things for you or have you been able to maintain the creative side of yourself uh, even with those, those, those parts of your life coming to, to be? Uh, no, look, it, it, it is a real balance, you know, and, you know, I'm, my, as I said, my father's a director and growing up, you know, I remember him not being around a lot, but I think that's because he would go, he would work a lot, you know, and, you know, this goes for a lot of industries, not just creative industries. Um, you know, they talk about the what's the sacrifice? What's the sacrifice? And and so often that sacrifice is not spending time with the people you love and not spending time with, you know, and, and are you prepared to do that? And what is the cost of that? And And do the people around you support that? Do they understand that? And so the it's not like a conscious sacrifice that you do because the sacrifice is that you lose something. And I've become very aware of that having kids that the time spent with them, as you know, just goes, you don't get it back, you know, and do you choose, you know, going away to London at the end of the last year in the middle of COVID for three months was the longest I'd been away it was magnified by the fact that people were having trouble coming in and out of the country. And so it felt much further away, but, that's the, the sacrifice was I had to choose for them as well because I'm away for three months and then, you know, my wife's taking care of the kids for three months. And so look, some people, you know, do it beyond, they can sacrifice more. Some people can't do it. Some people are unable to do it. I mean, life experience, I look at people who have had really fulfilling careers, you know, it's not because of them. It's because of probably either they don't have anyone else in their lives or they're really supported and they've had luck that they haven't, you know, even hit some health issues that might've turned them one way or another. I mean, no matter what it is, life can throw you a curveball. And if you're lucky enough to, to build something and have a healthy, happy family life, God, what a, that's all we can hope for really. Balance. The big, the big balance word. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. Um, I, I know you wanted to take the conversation here, Joe. I, I wanted to ask Ben, um, like, a bit more of your creative process. Like, um, you know, I mean, you work from different uh, to a film than you would to a documentary, I imagine. Um, and, like, I guess I'd use writing um, as my question, which is, like, how do you write? I recently listened to a podcast with Quentin Tarantino on it and I, I was thinking about that, like, and he was talking about how he writes and how he used to write when he was younger um, in restaurants or something like that and he'd spend like three, four hours in a restaurant, order food and have his stuff all over the tables. Now he's older, he has a process where he swims and he does all these things and he's in his house and then he sits and writes for the day 
um, yeah, like what with the family and stuff like that, um, how do you do it? Like, do you have a spot? Do you have to get out of the house? COVID's another issue. Like, how does that all work for you? Um, I'm, I'm a real procrastinator. I, I, I can put things off for so long, you know, but what, what uh, I make myself do is I take a lot of notes. So if I, if I do have a thought, you know, I will put it down and there's an, if there's enough welling up impetus to do it, I let it out. So I will do it. I don't have, or I haven't had a, a religious routine for writing um, for probably about 18 months now because I've just been busy and I've been going from project and, and the spurts of writing that I've needed to do in order to create some document around a project, you know, they've been short. There might've been like a period of a month, but um, I find for me, I do need to do that deep work. That deep work is really hard to do when you are within the same space for me, you know, as my family, just because, you know, you get, your mind gets kind of interrupted every 20 minutes. Um, so I have an office space that I go to in Erskineville that I rent. And actually that's with the, with the company that I do TV commercials with. That's been really important to me, you know, and that's, that's, uh, I put my headphones on, I have other people in there, but I can just really dive into it. Um, but in terms of just the, the routine of it, I feel like research really helps unlock a lot of stuff for me. So, you know, in, in the case of writing a film about a war photographer, um, watching films about them, documentaries, reading their, their autobiographies, um, all of that really helps. And that might just unlock something. Mm. Um, but often I find with writing and creativity is that there's a grind to it. There's a, there's a kind of a, a loop that goes over in your mind of trying to solve a problem. And it's when that uh, problem is solved or you come up with a good idea is that loop is broken. And that's actually what uh, is like the, the, the addictive feeling for me is like you've solved something, you know, but that loop, that grind is also a really dangerous time to spend uh, in your mind for a long time. You know, it can really wear you down. So it exercise is great. I think swimming, walking, I think is, is really helpful for me. You go for a walk for half an hour you know, and I find things just start to open up. The other time is just falling asleep, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> don't, don't your speeches and your words sound fantastic just as you're falling asleep? You're like, yeah, that sounded great. Yeah, yeah. So that, making notes at that time. But, um, yeah, yeah okay. look, it's hard. It's a battle. Someone described to me, which I relate to as writing, as, as um, hammering a nail in with your forehead. And <laughs> I, I, really don't, I, I really don't like writing but I do get pleasure out of it sometimes, but it is really a hard slog, I, I think. Yeah, because it always, like to me, I think of, um, I've, I've heard different pieces about writing, people talking about how, you know, they create habits around writing, you know, so they, they do a little bit every day, whether it's meaningful or not, or productive or not, and it's creating a habit and things will happen just by showing up all the time. And then there's like the also the idea of, um like creative creativity comes with boredom. So creating a space to be bored with nothing to do, which is like mm. really hard when you've got a family and stuff like that. <laughs> so they're kind of conflicting a bit. One's like, you know, go out, get drunk and, and maybe have a, a hangover the next day and, and then something will come to you. And the other one's more like a process whereby you're, you're going in there and it's a bit more of a military thing where you're like, just do it, do it and it will come. So it's, there's no formula for anyone. 
I suppose. No, there isn't. No. There isn't. And, and I think that also you, you're changing so much through your life that different things suit different circumstances, but mm. also your um, psychology as well at the time. I think your psychology changes a lot as you get older. And, um, but I think turning up is a really good point because, you know, if, if inspiration strikes and you happen to be writing at that time, it's really great. You know, but you might have you might have had a couple of hours that are just really exercising the muscle of writing. You know, um, you need to break that sometimes that cycle just to kind of refresh a, a thought or solve a problem. You're, there's the phrase that gets thrown around a lot in small business. It's super cliche. Um, working in your business versus working on your business. You've obviously both heard it. Um, you know, for us, it's it's a it's for someone running a gym or a small business, like a conventional small business, um, or more regular is probably a better way to put it. It's, it's, there's a lot of stuff to be done day to day on the job, right? So it's very easy to get caught up in just managing that stuff. And to be able to take yourself away from that, to go and work on bigger ideas or creative things, that's often, that, that time is often never created, right? It's something we really have to fight for. Um, it sounds like with, with your work that, that it's almost like the ratio is a little bit flipped where naturally you have more of that time or, or naturally the job itself is more of that creative time and then there's potentially less time where you're actually doing the managerial parts which are like, I don't know, getting out on set or talking with a photographer or, or a videographer or whatever. Is that a correct assumption? Do you, do you kind of see those two different – do you see it like that at all? I do, yeah. I mean, I think there's – uh, I do. I mean, I often think that, that, you know, so I want to direct. That's what I want to be doing. And the, the, the actual percentage of time that I'm directing in my life is minuscule, you know, compared to even the preparation, you know, or, or, or the thought about it or the uh, getting the job or, or being unemployed or, you know, writing it, you know. So I started writing because I wanted to um, – direct a film, but, and no one was mm. sending me scripts. So I thought I'll write my own, you know, like a lot of people tried to do. Um, and so it, it was always a means to an end. And I think that, yeah, the opportunities to actually do what you're meant to be doing that you want to be doing is tiny. I, I think that it's probably a lot for a lot of people who are trying to, you know, start a small business that is focused on something that they want to do. And I, that's how I see myself is that I, I started this business that I want to be a filmmaker, you know, and, and a lot of the time goes into shaping what that is, how that, you know, manifests itself. Do I have to invest money in myself? You know, do I have to go and, you know, promote myself? I mean, all that stuff is meaningful, but the actual practice of it is tiny in my life mm. you know it's a very small proportion but maybe all of it is really doing it when you say um you would you want to be directing um do you mean uh i want to be actually on a project that's that's working or do you or do you like and, and the whole process of something that seems to you know kind of be green lit and you're it's it's happening or do you mean specifically um the working on set, storyboarding, directing actors and putting the actual film together. Yeah. I mean, doing the job of, of, of knowing that you're on a project, whether yeah. it's someone else's or your own, yep. even if you've got no finance and you're trying to, you know, like in the case of making Ghost Hunter, 
I felt like I was directing when I was by myself still with a camera filming, you know, this guy mm-hmm. ghost hunting. Like that was, that was what I described. And that goes all the way up to working with actors on a, you know, a, a fully financed project. So, and then edit, editing as well, casting, you know, yeah. So that is the, 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 the job of a director, I guess. And that is a small proportion of what otherwise is a lot of padding around facilitating to do those things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big process around like, like you said, finding a script um, and then like promoting it. And you were talking about it before, like when you have a film and promoting it, right. Traveling with it and trying to get bums on the seats and all that sort of thing. So it's a long process sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Long process. I mean, ghost hunter, we finished filming in 2018 and uh, we had a social impact campaign, which revolved around uh, childhood trauma and better informing the public Mm. around those Mm. issues, particularly within uh, universities uh, that just finished this year, about a month ago. So it was a three-year campaign that sat outside the film of people working two, two to three days a week and just working with universities to create a, a research package around a teaching package, I should say. Okay. So, so that, that in itself is very different from the film. So the, the, the project of Ghost Hunter has just completed now, so it's 11 years really. I want to ask... Um Part of what's very interesting about this this chat and and why I wanted why we wanted to have you here uh, was I feel like creativity is now kind of with with social media and individuals but more so small businesses or business reliance on social media it's almost catapulted everyone into a position where they who, who are involved in business where they need to be they need to be creative. Right, we all like you know Instagram, Facebook, like all of a sudden everyone's a photographer. Everyone's got access to a decent, a decent camera. You know, it's content marketing, telling stories, all of these things. We've we've come to understand how important this aspect is of selling a product, right? Or 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 you know, surviving in the business. Um, almost ties into what you're saying about impact campaigns. It's like it's no longer just enough to have the business or to have the movie. You've got to have this other thing that goes, this story mm. and this narrative and this impact that goes along uh, behind it. Um, do you ever, so, you know, so I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about business owners and people who are like cast into this world, but it's like, well, I don't, I don't know what story to tell. I don't know how to be creative, right? Um, do you ever deal with imposter syndrome? Do you ever think mm. you're out there with Julian Assange's father and you're like, uh, who am I to be telling this story? To what, well, what, you know, how does, how do you, how does that play out for you? Yeah, look, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, familiar with that feeling of imposter syndrome, probably uh, more so experience it as feeling out of my depth. And um, uh, I don't know more recently, I'll probably deal with it and just trying to connect with the people on a uh, very personal level, meaning just make genuine human connections with them uh, despite what I'm doing, you know, despite how out of my depth it, it might be. Also, the other thing I've learned is just to keep quiet, is just to not say anything because <laughs> I've seen people go into certain situations and they just talk themselves into a hole and it can kind of all unravel from that. But I would say about creativity is that it really – I find the best description of creativity is just making a choice. So people feel, people say to me, oh, I'm not creative. I don't feel creative. But 
the, the times in which their lives, they're not realizing they're being creative, but they're exercising their creativity are times in which they really love. So I'll give you an example, something that doesn't really exist anymore, but going into a music store or, or, or choosing a film on Netflix or walking into a restaurant and deciding when the waiter or the waitress says, where do you want to sit? Where are you going to sit? That's been creative. Buying a new shirt. You're, you're expressing a decision within yourself to choose something. And that's what I think creativity is. It's making a choice. So often people's homes become a space for their creativity. They might not admit it, but the idea of choosing one brick over another or buying that couch or that car as opposed to that car is a creative choice. It's an internal expression of who they are. So I think if you take that and step that into a business or any other pursuit in life, it's not that far a leap to say, well, what is my narrative as a business owner or what is my story as who I am? It's just expressing those choices. So what's your business going to look like? You know, is it going to be in the inner West or is it going to be in the Northern suburbs or is it going to be in the rural area? You know, choosing what that is going to be will reflect who you are. So people say, I I, I find I look at some businesses and they're trying to find this narrative of who they are and the best ones I find that really impact me is people expressing who they are in a very authentic way. And I think everyone's really looking for that as a business. What's the, what's the authentic narrative of who I am? But it's so easy to get wrapped up in the idea that you're looking at what other people are doing. Mm. What font do they have on their logo or what color is that, you know, business car or whatever it is. But I think allowing your true nature to come out in those small choices can really guide you as to what your kind of narrative is and draw you more into the type of business you want to have. I mean, that's, I, I think that's what we're all looking for is something that's fulfilling to you spiritually, personally, psychologically, gives you a sense of um, a deeper understanding of who you are. And if your business reflects that, then I think people will gravitate towards it because it's real. Mm. It's uh, it's interesting you said, um, I think you said whether people like to admit it or not about how they set up their home. Mm. And I think that for a lot of us, we feel, I say we, I, I, you know, I, I like to be creative actually. I don't have any huge issue with it, I don't think. But I know for a lot of folks, um, they feel like creativity is almost like a, I don't know, like you need qualification yeah, you know, yeah. so so it's like, oh, well, what do you want to eat? What do you want to eat tonight? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to eat? Or, mm. you know, or like, um, what you know, uh, whatever. Choosing an outfit, and so we tend to stick with, we tend to make safe decisions, and I think that it's tied into this, like, I don't have the right to express my opinion on this situation, and and you know, whatever. Say say my opinion on something, or tell a narrative, right? Because you're telling a narrative anytime you you make a post on social media or, or whatever or you, you want to tell a story at a dinner party, it's kind of like you're, you're projecting your opinion and your, your narrative onto this thing. Yeah, mm. I feel like people don't feel like they have the right to do that. Yeah, and it's working out who you are. Like I remember, I mean, there's one example that of, of being a photographer and there's a saying that says, you know, one blurry image is a mistake, but 20 years of blurry images is a career. You know, that's, that's your signature style. You're going to do blurry shots. Oh, I love that. You know, you, you just, I, I really, I think it's really paying it. I say it to my kids often, it's just pay attention to what you're drawn to. You know, if you're walking down the street, 
you will choose to be drawn to some shops that just capture your imagination. Mm. You know, be aware of what are those shops. You know, is it a hardware store? Is it a, a secondhand clothes store? Is it a, you know, is it a pet store? Those things tell you about who you are, what those little subconscious choices that, that you make. And I feel like, I mean, I, when I go to a restaurant, I hate ordering, you know. And so if someone orders for me, I, I really, I'm like, cool. That's, that, that's something that I realized about myself. Or I'll say to the person there, can you just bring some food? You know, mm-hmm. that, that I love. I love being surprised. Some people hate that. But also it's something about me that I know that I like. And it's reflected in the choice in which I interact within that business. So it's those little things that I think that you start to search for within your life to dictate, okay, how am I, how is this going to be reflected in my home, in my business, in my relationship with people? That's such a really great and beautiful point. Um, you, how did you come about to realize this? Did you have a mentor? Did someone tell you this? Or is this a process you had have come to yourself. I know that I have struggled with it in the past, but uh, now that I think about it, it's a really cool approach and I'll, I'll definitely take it on and try and create more of a sensitivity um, for those things. Um, yeah, like how did you come about to, to, figure, to figure that thing out? I don't know. I had a friend who, I mean, obviously fascinated by the process of it, but I had a friend who would constantly say he's not creative. But he loved going to record stores, music stores, and and buying records. And I kept saying to him, "You're being creative. You're exercising your. You're expressing your choice over one album of another of what you want to play in your household. You're creating a soundtrack within your house by your own expression. You know." Mm. And he had great taste in music, but it was just something that he never saw as a as a creative thing. And you know, if you think in, in my capacity as a filmmaker. Um, choosing the music for a film, you know, I would just listen to a whole bunch of music and I'll put it against the pictures and I'll go, oh, that works. I really like that. And I felt something. And mm. that's the other thing is if you do something that pe- makes people feel something, that is amazing. It pulls them out of their lives. You know, if look at it on Instagram, if you make someone smile, you know, if you make someone angry, mm. Mm. if you get an emotional response out of people, you know, wow by your choices, by your expression, then you're halfway there, you know, and then it's just the storytelling around that. But I think that it's just you want people to be pulled out of their lives. You know, you want them to react. You want them to respond to what you're saying. And if that means doing it in different ways, expressive ways of being different and authentic, no one else can be you. So I think that... It's that's the other thing is that really if you can drill down to as to who you are and you express that truly, yep. no one else can be that. And that, that's what I find becomes really original as well. Um, a question I'm thinking about uh, the business owner, say, who's trying to tell their story. And I know a huge problem is, is scrolling and looking, as you, as you said, at other people or other gyms or businesses in your same industry and being influenced by it. Um, is there something that you do uh, that helps you protect that very special thing that's unique to you? So your creative thing, you know, the world through Ben's eyes, how, you know, do you struggle with seeing other things or, or how do you protect that thing? Do you, does it get hard to, does that sensitivity dull sometimes and you have to check yourself on it or like, you know? Yeah, I, I know think the only thing that gets in the way is probably um, ego. 
you know, mm. wanting to be something else, wanting to be more successful, wanting to be, you know, that's where I get caught out. And, uh, you know, I go, oh, what I'm doing is it's not, people aren't seeing, it's not, you know, I talk to friends and they go, you know, are you going to make a Marvel film one day? And I'm like, I'm never going to make a Marvel <laughs> film, you know, but they, that's success to them. That's me being successful. So I think the measure of success is different as well, mm. you know, and, and if I can fulfill myself, sustain myself financially and emotionally, and I'm getting constantly challenged creatively, then that's my measure. Um, but what does trip me up is like, what's the new shiny, you know, high profile thing that people are doing, yep. you know, I, I, it's funny doing TV commercials for 20 years, you know, I'd often go in and talk to brands and, um, marketers, you know, creative people who are trying to find what that story is. And so often companies are really reluctant to tell what that story is because they're either embarrassed by it or they're, um, you know, guided by what their competitors are doing. And that's when you get that kind of all looking the same. I mean, car ads are the same. You know, mm. I, I remember I did a campaign for Mitsubishi and we went down to, this is when the factory was open in, in Adelaide. And I said to them, you know, you have a workforce here of a few thousand people. They're the heart and soul, multi-generational group of people whose grandfather, grandson, granddaughters now work here. They all live in the area. It's like you have this beating heart and they never told that story so we just designed this campaign around the, the people who build the cars and we showed how much love they have for the company how much pride they have in crafting this car and it was an amazing factory you had tin coming in one end and 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 a car drive out the other end you know they built it all over this one building and it was just humming with all these people you know building and welding and it was amazing and that was the story we chose to tell and no other car companies were doing it at the time and they all then started to do it. And so when, when someone breaks free and actually finds out what the beating heart of their company is or what their identity is, they sometimes need someone else to point it out mm. because it, they just might need a push. But I think it's all there, you know. People are proud of what they do. And if they're proud of what they do then, and that shines through, then, God, people will back them all the time. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to see your own story. That's a good yeah. point. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's a bit of good advice as well for, say, the small business owners. It's like, look for some help or, or chat to um, a colleague or something to to take to, to see their take on what you do and what it is. Because you often don't know you're just doing the business. You don't know what people love the most about your business. You think it's actually the main part of the product, but it's actually you know the community or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, and it might be something really small that you just build on, you know. It mm. might be the way you greet people. It might be the way you, you know, the lighting in a space or, I mean, it could be something um, that just becomes the centrepiece of what you're doing, which attracts more people and you can build then build something, other, other levels around it that respond further to those, for those little moments. In terms of your process, this is jumping back a, a touch, but in terms of your process around it, can you talk on how you how you set boundaries in your life to allow your creativity? You know, you, you have you said you're a procrastinator, right? I, I guess I think most of us are to an extent, but but you've obviously still got to set sort of parameters where you're like, this is where I'm going. You know, like you have the office and that mm. sort of thing. How do you manage that with family, with all the other obligations in your life? Um, I think that. Look, think, I, I, I kind of resign myself to the fact that things change and things do end. I had, a, I had my own business for about eight years 
and I created a space that I really liked going to. And when that came to an end, that was really tough because I felt like, oh, that I was building everything on that, you know. I was building everything on this idea that I was going to have a company that I was going to do everything within and I was going to bring people in and, you know, make a little a mini empire. But when it didn't turn out like that, I had to adjust and think, oh, maybe it looks a bit different. So I think that um, setting boundaries can also um, cut you off to opportunities as well. I mean, on one hand, I, I, I've gotten better at saying no. That's probably one thing and feeling good about that because in the past, I, if I said no to something, I think, oh, God, should I have said no to that? You know, you're doing contract to contract. I missed out on something, you know, and, and, and so I guess allowing things to go to leave my not being opportunity anymore and being comfortable with that is good. Um, but setting the boundaries, I don't know. I think just communicating with people, asking them that what, you know, working on a film is so collaborative, you know, it's quite intense for a short period of time. And I think communicating is really important, being clear about what you're doing, what you want. In, in, in the first instance, it's confronting for people, I think, sometimes. Um, but in the long run, it's probably the best outcome, the best situation to be in because there's nothing worse than finding out later on that someone wanted something different. You know, so being clear up front, I think that's important. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, is just being open to anything, you know, being open, you know, what a wonderful quality, you know, it, it's when you come across people who are genuinely open and like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll give that a go, you know, it is refreshing. So, again, it's a bit of a balance. I don't know. I mean, I think people are funny or I think people – funny but also it's remarkable quality about being human is that we can have opposing values at the same time you know we can sit in two different places and feel the opposite at the same time so when you know that about people it's much easier to work with them because while people may seem fixed it just takes a bit of communication to maybe you know, steer yourself if it's an internal conversation or them into a new area in their lives. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think the openness, I mean, I think to, to go out for a ghost hunt on a Saturday night, there's a, you know, there's, you got to Wouldn't be, you like to do that? Go to a ghost hunt? I mean, there's a, a part of me, like the story you told of the house out where, like, yeah, cool, but like walking around, trudging around in the cold in some graveyard yeah. with a guy, like... No, you know, like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's the thing is that there's, you obviously have, a, uh, there's a, you know, you have the, I think you, you said it at the very beginning, it's like you saw a glimmer of something. And so I think that curiosity, you know, whether that's um, innate to you or, you know, whatever, but that's, you know, I think that's very special uh, because the, it takes like to, to have that sort of openness and to give your time like that. It just takes you, you, you have to be tolerant and you have to be liberal. And I don't think that that, you know, um, it's, it's one thing to have that. It's another thing to have that when you've got competing obligations, right? You've got kids, oh, totally. kids growing yeah, up yeah. and a partner, and, wife and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and life is, is never perfect in that way. And, and all those complications, I mean, you, yeah, you need, you need things to go your way sometimes, you know, I think. Um, but then you've also got that, um, you, you mentioned back, 
a while ago about a part of the process is there's a very exciting part. Um, like when you solve a problem, say, or like say you're hunting, you know, and you, you shoot a bunch of arrows from 300 yards and one hits. It's like it's very addictive, that feeling um, as mm. well. So that would that addiction, like, you know, taking that photo and capturing that moment and you get it, you're so proud of it. It's addictive as well. Yeah. And that's kind of what keeps you, keeps you going, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, and if that's the thing that's keeping you going at that moment, then that like, just go with it. You know, I'll, I'll take any motivation sometimes, you know, while I'm very patient, I think that, you know, your patience can wear thin. And if you're out there and you're just trying to motivate yourself, you know, I remember watching Bear Grylls, you know, and he'll eat a slug and go, wow, that's a bit of protein, you know, and, it's, and it just gets him through. It just lifts his spirits. And I often think about that, you know, just take what you can get. If something, you know, if you need a coffee in the morning and it gets you, makes you feel happy, then just take it. <laughs> what, what advice would you give? And this is maybe a bit of summary of a lot of what we've touched on, but what advice would you give to someone who's thinking, I have a desire to be more creative and whether that is through photography or through writing, and they're like, "Yep, I, I'm inspired by that chat, and I'd like to, I'd like to get it myself a nice little journal and do some writing each day." What advice would you give to someone who's trying to embark on that? I would say, don't take it too seriously, and l- look at things that you're like about. Look, if you're trying to write, look at other writers' work, you know, and try and emulate that. Just start by copying it. You know, seriously, I mean, I went and saw a, a, you know, to use the big example, I went and saw an exhibition of Picasso's life, life's work. And at one end, you had his early 20s paintings in his life and then right up until later on in his life where he had just created his own art movement, his own style. But the very earliest ones, he'd, he'd, he'd taken uh, Japanese block art, combined it with another style, and it was though this mismatch of works that techniques that he was trying to emulate and copy. And so I would say just, you know, creative people are thieves, you know, the best ones cover their tracks, you know, nothing's original. So don't, don't feel like you're just generating it from nowhere. You know, people talk about inspiration, often great songs, great films. They've been, I want to, I'm going to use a a pretty blunt term, but they've been ripped off from somewhere. You know, mm. you listen to some chord passages in some, you know, they sound very similar to others, you know. Um, you know, they talk about Led Zeppelin. They were the bowerbirds of music. They just ripped from everywhere. So look, don't feel, don't feel ashamed about that because over time you start to work out what your voice is and, and going through the filter, copying something or emulating something through the filter of yourself still comes out in some other form. So something happens when it goes through you. And then over time, that practice then becomes a total own voice and all creative people do it. They're inspired by others. Inspiration's probably the best word, but look at what other people are doing. So that that is a creative choice, you know? And then sometimes you'll just get a bolt of lightning, total inspiration out of nowhere and, you know, it'll you'll be ready for it. Yeah. That's a beautiful piece of advice. Makes me think of uh, Bruce Lee's famous quote about taking something and adding what is uniquely your own. Oh, yeah. You know, and I I think um, it's, I mean, you could make the argument that that all creativity ultimately has to be that because even if you are coming up with something, 
you are like divinely inspired, it's still based on everything that you're consuming through your senses anyway. So you're actually kind of reinterpreting other yeah. people's work or other things in life to um, at its most base level, even if you were consciously trying not to kind of thing. Yeah. So nothing ever existed without something prior to it. And it is that evolution that I think, you know, we're a cooperative species and you think about the evolution of tools that we use, you know, and technologies, they've always been based, they've always kind of evolved up. And so this, the creativity is the same, you know, we can only be as good as the creative people that have gone before us. You know, it's very hard when you look at something that is, you know, people at the peak of their game, but that's okay. If you can break it down and re -eng uh, reverse engineer something and then create it yourself, I mean, that's, that's remarkable, you know. You're still learning the process of how things go together. So it's not that different if you're going to – look, if you wanted to make a toaster from scratch, you'd look at what the latest toasters are doing, wouldn't you? You're uh, not going to just make it up. That's a great point. <laughs> Mate, um, I think that's a pretty awesome place for us to wrap it up. Um, I Personally, I just want to say thanks for the, for the time. I wanted to tell you um, – you and I'm sure Paul will have the the same thing here. You've been one of my greatest inspirations in photography. Well, uh, thanks, man. Yeah, and I and I still remember two bits of advice that you gave me when I was traveling through Europe. And I I I had my camera and I really wanted to be taking better photos, but I was I was experiencing all of those issues of like I don't feel confident to stick my camera in people's faces, and it just and I'm nervous and. And you gave me, you gave me, you sent me an email, but there were two really key bits of information. One of them was you said, sometimes I will um, walk around in a particular place where I know that a, a photograph is going to emerge, but I might have to walk around there for half of the day until that I stumble across that moment. So don't be afraid to give that time to something. Mm. And the other one that you said was, put the camera up to your eye and then don't take it away because you will feel more confident when you have the camera kind of in between <laughs> you and reality. And, uh, and I really like that. And I actually, oh, and the third piece was, yeah, I think you told me you sometimes take photos off the hip. And I actually took one of my greatest photographs ever of two nuns at a train station sitting down. One of them's enormous, one of them's small and frail. And the enormous one's reading the Bible. And then behind them are like soda machines and the trains. Oh, and, uh, but I took it off the hip and it's still one of my greatest photos. I'm like, fucking Ben, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> best advice so thank yeah. you thank you for those those lessons have have uh been good to me and i cherish them yeah very good oh, i want to end with a bruce lee quote if i can please it's my favorite is be like water <laughs> that's one of my favorites and i and i think if you haven't if you haven't seen it google it it's in an interview and it's the way he presents that that quote is just just powerful beautiful that's lovely yeah, um, thanks, Ben. I really appreciate it. Uh, and yeah, what to, to what Joe said as well. Um, you've always been that person that I've looked up to. We were just trying to copy you when we were taking black and white photos, pretty much. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but just being that curious, <laughs> Thank you. being that curious guy. Um, and um, yeah, just just love growing up with you guys and had some really good memories. So it's cool to talk today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. And you guys are inspiration to me. I think what you're doing, your business, your energy and all of that, like it just, it, it fuels me as well. So I'm very, very happy to see it play out. Have you got, um, I understand your latest, the release of your latest film has been delayed because of COVID. Uh, is there anywhere, you know, can we direct listeners towards that or can we hype it up in some way? What's, what's the deal? 
we don't have any screenings at the moment because of COVID. Um, it may be released in cinemas early next year. It's called Ithaca. Um, I'll send you guys a link when the trailer's coming out. should be soon. But, yeah, at the moment, everything's a little bit on hold. So I'll, I will let you know. I'll keep you posted. Have you got any uh, exhibitions coming up, any photo exhibitions? Or is your book still in print? My book's still in print, yeah. There, there's a few around, still floating around. Um, I've kind of backed off from photography for a long time, but I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think when my kids come of age, I'm going to get, get back into it. Awesome. Awesome. I look forward to that. Mate, um, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm get, we're going to wrap it there, but you can stay on the call. I'm just going to stop recording right now. <laughs>